Good morning, everyone. We're going to be continuing our lessons in 1 Corinthians, the third chapter. If you would turn to 1 Corinthians 3 with me. We are still looking at the message of Paul to the Corinthians, particularly the part of the letter uh, that deals with the fact that they are divided, that they are being divisive with one another, among one another. And we're going to look... uh, a little bit more exactly at, at what Paul is pointing out uh, to the Corinthians. Now he's narrowing uh, his focus quite a bit. And he has explained that division occurs whenever the, the cross is, is lost from focus. That's what he says happens. When it's not at the, at the center of our lives, we will start to divide as Christians. We will divide from those who have it centered Uh, away from those who don't. And it can happen within a congregation. It can happen within a family. It can happen among brethren very easily. And so he says this this focus, when it's lost, when it's not central to everything that we do, that's what causes uh, the cross to lose its power for us. And again, it's not that the cross loses its power personally. It never loses its power to save. It never loses its power to guide. Uh, but the emptying of the cross that Paul is talking about is about us. Whenever we become selfish, whenever we become worldly, uh, whenever we start to believe anything uh, that is uh, in absence of what the gospel teaches or what the cross represents. And that's a, a message for us even today. We can look at passages, for example, like Colossians 3 and 17, which is a passage that most of us or all of us are familiar with. And it's a a simple message. Anything that you do in word or in deed, it says, do all in the name of the Lord. That's the idea. That's what Paul's talking about. Division is not a, a, a thing that is difficult to figure out. It's not complicated at all. He says it simply happens whenever we're not doing and saying and acting all things according to the will of God. That's it. That's exactly what causes division. And the warning here is that the loss of that cross-centered life will lead to that division. And so he's still focusing upon that for them and also for us. And if you look at that first few verses of chapter 3, I'd like to read them with you there. Look at what he says there in chapter 3. He says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people. Now this is something that he's going to bring up again and again and we talked about before he says i could not address you as spiritual people but as people of the flesh as infants in christ i fed you with milk not solid food for you are not ready for it and even now you're not ready for you are still of the flesh for while there is jealousy and strife among you are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Remember, these are those who Paul is talking to. He's talking to the immature. He's trying to goad them, trying to encourage them to a greater maturity. I honestly believe that it's easy to imply that Paul's also looking for the ears and the minds and the hearts of those who are mature in Christ, so that they can help Him uh, take up this work with those who aren't. 
This is very important in a congregation. This is exactly how a congregation, an assembly of God's people, is supposed to work. There are always those who are not quite there. There are always those who are immature. Uh, and it's not about age or anything. There could be an 85-year-old in the middle of the assembly that's the most immature in the assembly. Uh, when it comes to faith, when it comes to being spiritual, when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to living uh, under the gospel and Christ-centered, a cross-centered life, that, that, that could be anybody. It could be from the youngest to the very oldest. Uh, so that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about those who actually choose this milk. They haven't moved beyond it. And, and you know, this is not hard for us to understand. I mean, I don't know how many people like milk, but milk is really, really good. It's just that, at, at you know, I'm 50. I'm, I'm not really supposed to drink as much milk, according to the doctors, as I should have when I was 15. Okay, so it's not something that I need anymore. But if you're a lover of milk, and I am a lover of milk, you love milk. You love it's it, when it's cold and it, and it's creamy and it's and it's good and it's refreshing and you could just drink it all day long, but it's not good for you <laughs> at some point. Okay, you have and you can drink it sometimes. That's not the point. Uh, but the point is that's not all that you should long for when that true maturity happens. And this is what's happening with the Corinthians. They're longing for that milk so much that they're just basically putting away everything else. And if you look with me in Hebrews, this is very similar to what the Hebrew writer uh, also warns. And so if you turn with me there to Hebrews, the fifth chapter, that verse there, that the passage actually that's on the, uh, the board there, starting in Hebrews 5.11, look at what Paul says there. Uh, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull in your hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding Him up to contempt. So sad, isn't it? You long for milk. You empty the cross of its power. If you seek to return, which is an impossibility. And you know, again, the Paul is not saying, you know, this just can't happen. He's saying this is something that is likely not to happen. And if you've ever known someone who's a strong, I mean dedicated, and I mean truthfully, a strong, dedicated Christian that has turned from Christ, um, it's not a pretty sight. 
It's not a pretty sight. You could have kind of half-hearted Christians, half-hearted Christians that are are kind of, well, we're here, there, but we're going to fall away for a while, and then they come back and they're even stronger. That does happen. But I'm talking about someone who is dedicated. Dedicated, convinced, it is very difficult to see them return. This is what Paul is talking about here. Because they went longing for the milk again. It's so, it's so wonderful to be reminded of this. Uh, the Andersons reminded me of this not too long ago. They, they were feeding uh, their child milk all the time, and it just wasn't doing what it was supposed to do. And lo and behold, they had to put the, the, the rice in, in with, the, with, the, with, the, with the formula, right? Because it just wasn't doing it anymore. He was ready to progress. And he is progressing, right? And that's the way babies are. They progress. They, they don't want just the milk. They want something else in there. <laughs> you know, they need, they need that addition to it so that they can begin to grow. And there'll be a time when, when he's sitting there with a sipper cup and it'll be filled with milk, but he's not just going to be content with that. He's going to want the food. He's going to, he's going to want a plate with some food on it. It'll cut up in little pieces so he doesn't choke. He's going to want that. You know, and he's going to want to eat that. And this is the way things progress, right? And this is why Paul is talking about an infant. They're babes. He says, this doesn't make any sense. You should be moving forward. Because if you're not, all you're doing is what he warned the Hebrews about. If you're not moving forward, you're actually kind of waiting to fall away. And that's a a terribly sobering and important message for us. That constant growth that we need. And we don't often see it. What do you hear? I, I know what I hear. Hey, you want to do a class? And I've heard this my whole life. I use this excuse at certain times of my life. These were the words coming out of my mouth. Hey, you want to lead a class? Well, I'm not ready yet. Okay. When? When are you going to be ready? Well, I don't know. Well, if you don't know, who does? You know, I, I don't get that argumentative, but, but the fact of the matter is, is that that's really sad to hear. I'm not ready yet? That's not what we should say. What we should say is, I'll give it a try. I don't know how good I'll be, but I'll give it a try. I love hearing that answer, because that's, that's an honest answer. That's an honest, I'm going forward answer, right? How about others who say, well, you know, I don't know enough. And again, how do I know people think this and say this? I use these excuses. Well, I don't think I know enough yet. And I was asked by brethren, when are you going to know enough? How did you come to Christ? Well, I know how I came to Christ. Well, then teach that. You're ready. You're ready. If you know how you came to Christ, teach others how you came to Christ. You're ready to go beyond milk. But there comes a time we don't want to hear that. Or I don't have the ability or the talent. Well, that's never stopped anybody before. That's a joke, by the way, but don't worry about that. But anyway, but, but no, not having the ability, not having the talent, that's not something that should stop us. You know, people say, I don't like to lead singing because I can't sing. I don't care. God's not listening to the harmony of your voice. As the, the one who gave the prayer pointed out, he is smelling that sweet smelling savor. <coughs> It's not even his ears. It's his, it's his olfactory. He's smelling it. He understands it. He, he, he gets that from it. He's not uh, caring about the melody or the harmony. And isn't that so sad? That's what we often forget. Excuses, excuses, excuses. And we're showing ourselves to have a milk-fed faith. That's what Paul is talking about here. And it's a very urgent message. 
Because he is exposing worldliness. Now, interestingly, his definition of worldliness that Paul gives out to us here implies a lot different things than I think what we understand worldliness as for the most part. If I tell you, tell me some worldly things, I think you would say, well, you know, sexual immorality, fornication, you know, sex before you're married, uh, prostitution, uh, pornography. You know, we can, we can point to all these different things. If I, if I curse, if I'm an alcoholic, if I'm addicted to something, you know, if I did, those are, are what I would call worldliness. So wouldn't you call those worldliness, Joe? And I would say, oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's worldliness. But all those things that we list, I think, are the product of worldliness. And I think that's what Paul is really pointing out here. Those are the end result of what worldliness happens. Worldliness, to Paul, is not necessarily just the practice of sin. Worldliness, for Paul, I think, is something that brings us a a little bit more to the uncomfortable zone. It takes us a little bit out of what we're comfortable with, what we can identify, and he gets uh, a little bit closer to the intent of the human mind and the human heart. Because it's easy for us to say, you know, I abstain from those kinds of things. Well, that's good. Well, you're supposed to abstain from those kinds of things. But not only are you supposed to abstain and avoid them, you're supposed to hate them and loathe them. They're not even supposed to be entertained by your mind and heart. The scriptures tell us those things aren't even supposed to have a draw for us. Oh, easier said than done. Nobody is doubting that. But the fact of the matter is that's what the scriptures say. Those things are not even supposed to draw us in. And that appears to be what the worldliness is that Paul is exposing. He's exposing a way of life, a way of thinking. He's exposing a unit of measurement for everything that we do, everything that we say, everything that we accept, everything that we allow, everything that we avoid, whatever it is. And please note that word measuring. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in this evening's lesson, but that's what he's talking about. Worldliness occurs when we accept the worth of things based on the standards of the world around us or the standards of society. That's what worldliness is. When I give in to that may be okay, or I give in to that may be okay, Paul says this is what causes all the problem. And again, it's just whenever the cross, the gospel, it's off-center. The will of God leaves our focus. That's that's what happens. Because he tells us everything he needs to that we need to know, everything that he needs to tell us, and when we don't value it, in everything, when we don't consider it for every decision or every thought or every action, well, there you go. You know, you, you've gone off center. And that's what Paul is talking about here. James says it very clearly, doesn't he? Go back with me, back to where you were in Hebrews and go a little further to James, the fourth chapter. In James chapter four, uh, verses one through eight, look at what, what he writes there. Uh, James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Isn't James Talking about division here among brethren? Absolutely he is. He's got the same topic here that Paul is talking about in his first letter to Corinth, in those first few uh, chapters especially. And he says, Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? 
You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you don't ask. You ask but don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it upon your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God? Could it be any easier than that? Could it be any easier than for us to understand what Paul is saying here? If we are worldly and we are entertaining the worldly value of something with regard to what the gospel teaches, then we're moving away and having no growth. We're actually rooting ourselves within the divisive and sinful practices that divided Corinth and eventually destroyed it. And and the practices that rooted themselves into those congregations and those brethren and eventually destroyed it. And, And Paul's not putting up with that. He's teaching us that whatever is not of God is an idolatrous move towards worldliness. And that worldliness taking root and reigning within us. And we say, that's, that's very disciplined. That's very tough, isn't it? That's very rough. That's a hard mark. And yeah, absolutely. It's the hardest mark. It's, it's tough. But it, it is, it is holiness. And it is security. And it is providence, and it is grace, and it's blessing, and it's salvation, and it's everlasting life. And so, Paul's not, not uh, conflicted here at all. He just wants everyone to understand that. That worldliness defies the Scriptures. And we do that sometimes too, don't we? You, you've known that. We, we kind of defy things that we really need. Look with me there in John. We already read in John 6 before in the morning class. We're already in, in verse 10, uh, chapter 10. But if you go back to ver- chapter 6 real quick and just look through that passage, and I'm not going to read that particular passage, but if you look at that and you remember that, this is just incredible. These things that he's saying to them is really throwing them off. <laughs> he's, t- he's telling them about dedication to him. He's telling them very simply, you know, if if you want to be a part of me, you must eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood. You have to do all of these things. And look at verse 66. After he gets done with all of that, it says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. That's one of the saddest passages that we ever read in the Scripture because Jesus got his heart broken. By these individuals. Could you imagine the sadness that he felt when he was just simply telling them, I am the Messiah. I am God on earth. I am the one that's come to deliver you and I've proven it to you. I've healed the blind. I've I've healed the sick. I've fed thousands with almost nothing. I'm showing you everything. And I want you to know that you need to have an intimate relationship with me. And that's what he's saying. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. Not literally, but you have to consume me. Make me a, a, a part of you. Every part of you. And they walk away. You know, Jesus loved with this great love and it got thrown back in His face. And so He turns to His twelve and He says, Will you leave too? Oh, 
You know, it's just heartbreaking to see the way that Jesus Christ reacts to that because brethren and friends, that's the way that God reacts to us. Whenever we allow this worldliness to defy us and to defy God, whenever we allow it to defy His purposes, we look into the Scriptures and we long for milk. Whenever we're supposed to to want meat. And then when we're offered meat, we, we take this position like, well, do we really need to think about that? You know, that, that's a little rough or that's a little tough. But that's what causes us to fall apart. See, that's what we do when we read the Scriptures and when it says, let your, let your language be seasoned with salt that it may be grace to the hearers. And we can't muster enough of our personality or our character to do that. That's what happens. Well, I'm going to talk to you however I want to talk to you. Because it's just the way I am. And maybe you just need to be talked to that way. you know. And I just get all arrogant and puffy and prideful. And I talk any old way I want to. Say any old thing I want to say. And, that, and that's just the way it is. Or I want to act uh, badly. I want to spread gossip. I want to spread rumor. See, this is the thing. I am now entertaining the worldly way of doing things. I'm not going to be that namby-pamby wimp that walks in and shakes your hand and tells you how wonderful it is to see you and everything and we missed you and you know you haven't been attending like you should, but I'm just glad you're here today. And I'm not going to be that namby-pamby wimp that doesn't say anything. Well, no, don't be the namby-pamby wimp that doesn't say anything, but say it graciously, seasoned with grace, so that it may give grace to the hearer. You know why we don't do it? That takes work. That takes work. It's easier to say, straighten up, you smart aleck. Now get out of my face. It's easier to say that. We don't want to, we don't want to acknowledge that. But it's easier to say that. It's more, it's more in tune to the way we are humanly. <laughs> Worldly. This is the way that we are. And that's exactly what he's warning about. And it comes from the lessons of the Bible as well. Have you ever heard somebody say, you know, I don't think we get enough of those really, really good feeling lessons. Those feel good kind of lessons from the Bible. You know, and, and I, I always tell people, you know, I've read the Bible extensively. <laughs> and I feel like a, more of a slap in the face when I read through the Bible than I ever do a pat on the back. It's just, it's just I feel those pats on the back. They're there. But, but God is about uh, uh, challenging our worldliness. And he does that with the meat, warning us, teaching us, you know, admonishing us, pleading with us, asking us, telling us to consider him and to and to accept him. But all we want is the milk. And see, when you look there in John six, where we were before, and you look at those verses forty one through seventy one, that's what they did. That's what that did. That's a hard saying. What does he mean? Uh, eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. Well, what he means is to have that intimate relationship with him. To ingest him. To accept him completely. As you would a piece of meat or a piece of bread if you were starving. And almost dying. That's what he's saying. He's not saying anything creepy or anything philosophical or anything weird. He's symbolically telling you, look to Him as true food, because He is. 
That's what he's saying. And they just couldn't hear that. They couldn't listen to it. And they walked away. And it's the same thing when we're selfish, thoughtless, or or sinful, or guilty. Because Jesus taught us over and over again, and Paul is teaching us through the Corinthian letter, letter, we've got to be servant leaders. Servant leaders. Look at 1 Corinthians 3 again. 1 Corinthians 3... Uh, verses 5-9. through nine. Look at what he says. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Remember he is saying, you're divided because some of you want to take his side, some of you want to take my side as if we're against each other. That's what he's already explained. They're not against each other. And he says in verse 5, uh, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Paul knows and understands the parables that Jesus taught, doesn't he? This is exactly what Jesus taught in his parables about being servants. He says, we all have to understand we're equal in task within the kingdom. That's what he tells us to understand. If I look at somebody else and I look at myself, I have to see us as equal in task within the kingdom. You know, there's something we know about the scriptures. Who was the better public speaker? Apollos or Paul? We know. Apollos was way better of a public speaker than Paul ever could be. Who could write better? Could Paul write better than Apollos? I imagine he could. Yeah, I imagine he could. And when we read this, we look and go, I don't have any doubt at all that Paul wrote more prolifically than just about anybody. Okay, well, who's better? The writer or the public speaker? Who's greater? The one who can give a speech or the one who can write a beautiful letter? See, answer that question for yourself, because we do that. Paul says it's, there's no such thing. That's what he's teaching there. They're equal in task in the kingdom. If we believe that, honestly believe that, then growth from worldly wisdom will occur. Who's the greatest in the assembly? Why, the elders are the greatest in the assembly. No. They're equal in task to the person who can barely make it to services because they have to work 80 hours a week to survive. They're doing their very best. The elders are doing their very best. They better be. And that's what it's supposed to be like. Who's better? Who's greater? The one who's working 80 hours a week just to survive and try to, and try to get to services to do the very best that they can and study, or the elder? But we, we learn things in a hierarchy, don't we? And a matter of fact, this is the way we go. Well, the elder's highest. Then you got the deacon people. Uh, then maybe the preacher. Then the pillar member. And then everybody else who sits in the pew uh, comes in and then leaves. That's the hierarchy of the church, right? No. <laughs> Paul says there is no such thing. Everyone is equal in task. Because God gives the increase. We are God's field. We are God's building. That's what the scriptures teach us. 
I am equal to you. Let me tell you something. Have you ever criticized anybody that was equal to you? I mean, seriously now. If you consider others equal to you, criticizing them won't happen. Have you ever insulted anybody who is equal to you? (laughs) Again, honestly, if we look at others as equal to us, we won't criticize them unfairly, insult them, embarrass them, treat them badly. We won't do that. We will do as the scriptures teach us to do. We will consider them as we consider ourselves. Okay, that's the thing that we will do. And that's what Paul is teaching. If we if we see ourselves as equal in task, we're going to do things differently. We're going to think differently. Because we understand we are the temple of God. Talk about a high calling. In 1 Corinthians 3 there, starting in verse 10, if you would read with me there, 10 through 17. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. What would it take to end the church of the Lord in El Paso? I don't mean buildings and congregations where they meet. But what would it take to end it? Well, membership's a little low. Is that going to end it? Arguments between members. What is the fire revealing for the Lord's church here in this city? That's the, the, the same question that Paul is asking there in Corinth. And see, the answer lies in the manifestation of each of our temples, of our persons, of us, ourselves. And again, we're going to explore that more this evening. And But this is something that we should keep in our mind daily, hourly, every moment of every day. How am I manifesting my temple before God and in this world? Because see, that's the problem with Corinth. Corinth's problem was that they were failing in doctrine time and again. And what does Paul tell them? Grow. Corinth is... is is very interesting in the New Testament. The letter is very unique. And the references to the city are very unique in the New Testament. Paul actually encouraged people to go to Corinth and become a part of the body there from other places. Now, you've read about Corinth. <laughs> you know how Corinth is. Why would Paul do something like that? Why would he tell people from other places that were going to be traveling uh, to the area around Corinth to go to Corinth and, and add themselves 
to the members that were already in Corinth. Why would he do such a thing? They got people sleeping with their father's mother, and they 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 got idolaters over here. They got fornicators over there. They got you know liars and cheats and false prophets. I mean, they're questioning the apostles. This place is in disarray. Why is Paul looking at people, telling them, "Hey, you go, you go over there, and you serve in that congregation"? Why would he say such a thing? Because it's not. There's no human wisdom in it. Paul would look at someone who he considered faithful and say, go to that place. The place that needs the most faithful people is the place that's struggling the most. Paul knows that. Paul understands that and he sees that. How are we manifesting each of our temples? See, Paul's telling him, whatever it is around you, grow, move up, build, become more spiritual. You know how to do it. It's it's move forward. It's forget the past. How many of us here are not the Christians we should be because we're still dwelling in yesterday? Well, you know, I did this and I did that and I don't know if I could ever really come around to what I'm supposed to be. And Again, that's worldly wisdom. That makes no difference. Peter was very clear. What did he say the one thing was that he did? (laughs) He said, put what was past behind him and strive forward. That's the same thing that Paul is saying here. It doesn't matter what you did, what happened. Come on. You know, those things are past. It matters if you're you're still doing it, if you're going to wallow in it. But, But other than that, don't be dismayed. Move on. Don't hold back. Don't be discouraged. Move forward. Why? Because we are the temple of God. And if we manifest that temple in worldliness, God's going to destroy it. And he's going to destroy those who hurt the temple. He's going to take our enemies and he's going to avenge us. We don't have to do it. He's going to do it. What we have to do is strive forward. We have to build. We have to grow. We have to mature. That's what we have to do. We don't even have to worry about them. No looking to the side. No looking behind. Only look forward. You remember Matthew 21. Jesus taking those cords and wrapping them up and whipping those money changers and taking them out of the temple. You won't see that on a bumper sticker. You know, you'll see something else on a bumper sticker, but you won't see that. The the Lord of all, the Christ, the Savior of the world, He got angry when they were defiling the temple. He said, this is supposed to be a place of prayer. You've turned it into a den of thieves. And He wouldn't put up with it. He's just illustrating exactly how serious God is about His temple, isn't He? At least in one way. There are lots of lessons to learn from that. But Christ reacted to that. Well, what about us? We're we're walking temples. Verse 17 again says, If anyone destroys God's temple, God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. <coughs> but we can be deceived about that, can't we? Notice verses 18 through 23. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. 
So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Read that again. Verse 21, very important. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. What a wonderful promise to Corinth and to us. Verse 22, he says, Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. What a wonderful promise there. Only God knows his own spirit. Just like only we know our own spirits. Well, who are we? We know how we're manifesting our temples. We know who we are. We know what my, I know what my weaknesses are, what my tendencies are, what my sins are in this life. Only I know. Other people can get a hint. Other people can get an idea. Uh, or other people can be completely ignorant of it. But I know. And that's what Paul is telling the Corinthians. You are God's temple. Everything is yours if you would just simply be His temple. Manifest yourself as His temple. Everything will be yours. Well, I don't think I want that. What? Isn't that exactly what we're saying? <clears throat> Paul says if we manifest our temples correctly, if we understand that we're the temple and that gets shown, we are going to have all things because the Lord knows everything. <clears throat> now, are we deceived by our belief otherwise? I mean, what does our life reveal? Well, I'm only going to do that for a few minutes. I know that God doesn't like it. <clears throat> I know that it's against the gospel. It's against the will of God, but Frankly, it makes me feel better. And frankly, it brings joy to me, even if it's just temporary. And so, I mean, I don't see what the big deal is. Right? We're going to talk about that more this evening. That's what we say, right? What's the big deal? What's the big deal about this? What's the big deal about that? Well, when we say, what's the big deal about that? Or why can't I do that? Or why shouldn't I be able to? We have... Abandon our faith in the wisdom of God. Because God is very clear <coughs> about what things are right and what things are wrong. What things are sinful and what things make for righteousness. And we just try to hide them. And when we do, we divide ourselves away. Because Paul says there's a foundation there. And build on that foundation. But then he says, but be careful how you build on it. If I build a wall and I make one half cinder brick and one half adobe and I let it go through a few years, which wall is going to sag? Right. As a matter of fact, one wall might actually cause too much pressure for the other one to stand and cave in. It has to be equal. What is that called? That's called division. The good divides from the poor. And so Paul is saying that's what's happening here. Be careful how you build. Because you are building from the foundation that is Christ. He's the cornerstone and we build from that. We'll talk more about that this evening. But we build from that to become the temple of the living God and be the temple of the living God because we understand we can do that. And that's the invitation to us no matter where we find ourselves in life. It's amazing, isn't it? 
you know, God is in heaven. He has provided through the Holy Spirit that these scriptures be written down and preserved through the ages so that you and I could read them even today. And he says, look, um, everlasting life. How do you feel right now? Well, things kind of hurt. I get sick sometimes. You know, I've had to go through a lot. I have to go to, you know, Monday's coming. Monday's tomorrow. i got to start work again tomorrow. i got to work every day. And I've got to do all these things. It's not so great. I'll tell you what. I'll just relieve you of all of that. <laughs> and you just follow me. No. No, I kind of like going into work. You know, I kind of like going into work. I kind of like all the labor and the the, 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 pick, the sickness and the pain and all the things associated with life. I'm good, God. I think I'll just take this life as my reward and you can keep the rest. Nobody thinks that. Nobody thinks that, as far as I know. <laughs> or nobody should think that. But we act that way, don't we? We act that way all the time simply because we will not heed His invitation. It's a simple invitation. He is the Good Shepherd, as we learned this morning. He is the door. He is the way. He is the life. Anybody who, who comes to Him will go in and out with peace. Anybody who comes to Him will be will have peace and love and prosperity. And that's exactly what will happen. Anybody who doesn't will not. Which choice are you and I going to make this morning? Because if you have not been baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins, why haven't you been? The Scriptures teach us. That's exactly what Jesus was saying there in, in John. To take me on. <laughs> You know, be baptized into Christ. Put on Christ so that He can clothe you, truly clothe you spiritually and save you and help you and aid you. Why would we do that? And if you are a Christian and you, you see yourself in the mirror every day and you know all the inconsistencies that you have, but you just decide to ignore them. Like James says, you're that one that looks into the mirror, sees everything that's wrong and then turns away as if he didn't see anything. And that's all we do with arrogance and pride and all of that. Have you ever walked in front of the mirror and went, looking good, and get out of there, no matter how bad you look? I remember growing up, I grew up around a bunch of brothers. They used to do that all the time. They'd go in the bathroom and they'd go. And walk out and I'd be like, you're not that good looking, G. Come on, give me a break. But that's exactly what he's talking about. My standard is, hey, I look good. <laughs> Everybody else's standard is, you know, you don't. So when I look into the scriptures, am I going to look in with my eyes? And am I going to look at my life with my eyes? Or am I going to look at my life with God's eyes? Through the light of the scripture. That's the question. If you aren't a Christian, you need to be one. If you are a Christian, you need to build. And you need to grow. And you need to move from that position. That's the, that's the message of Corinth. That's the message of the Scriptures for us, and that's the message we're all listening to and heeding today. And so if there's any need that you have, remember, God is powerful, and He's loving. He can provide, He can bless, and He can give you grace to endure. Grace to endure. He can do all of those things if you would only turn to Him. And if you would, please, don't wait another moment. If you have any need at all, please let it be known while we stand together and while we sing the song that has been selected.